everyone. We're the Maker Group. Welcome to our podcast, Fun Builds. It's a fun podcast with fun people talking about fun things that connect us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to what we're going to call season two of our podcast, A Place to Go, where we look behind the scenes at some of the people and projects that are changing public spaces across Canada and in some cases the world. Greetings from Winnipeg. I'm your host, Brennan Fidak. And before we get to our esteemed guest, I'd like to introduce our new co-host, Kirk Hutchinson. Thanks for joining, Kirk. It's glad to have you here. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Her name is Suzanne Quinn. Suzanne is a researcher, a lecturer, an author, and currently the manager of the Compan Play Institute. And in my opinion, an expert on all things regarding play and child development. And I would be hard pressed to find someone to disagree with me. Um, she's a wealth of information and we're happy to have her on. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. It's um, good to be with you both. So manager of the Compan Play Institute. That's an interesting title. How did you get there? Where did you start? Well, many years, of course, of studying and observing children with a focus on play and pedagogy that really gave me the experience that was needed to take in a role like this. The Compan Play Institute itself has been in existence for 25 years. So my colleague, Jeanetta Fish-Jesperson, and um, they were looking, you know, as they were expanding North America to have somebody in place in that role in North America. And it just came along at the right time for me to have a career change. Well, not really a career change. I was a tutor professor before I came on board full-time researcher with Compan. So in many ways, it's very similar to what I was doing before at the university. But now I'm just doing it for Compan. And so the focus is clearly on the outdoor play environment with playground equipment for active play. And then the tutoring part, I do a lot of uh, with landscape architects. So how did I get here? Uh, a pathway through university and child development into this very interesting and very unique role with a company that wants to make sure that what they're making and, and what advice they're giving to landscape architects and playground owners is you know, making the playground the best it possibly can be. Awesome. And you mentioned um, just briefly there a pedagogy and pedagogical study. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit um, for, for our listeners? <laughs> sure. So when we want to enter into a relationship with young children that is helping them to learn their survival skills of so whatever that is in your uh, cultural niche, for many of us in North America, that's you know literacy and mathematics and socio-emotional skills and right. Skills to be, you know, a happy, healthy human being who likes to play and move around a lot and make friends. Pedagogical studies are the studies of how we can enter into that relationship. Another word for that would be teaching. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that pedagogy says a lot more. So that's why I prefer to use that term. And most of my colleagues do. My background is from a historical perspective in Frobelian principles. And Froebel was the founder of kindergartens in what is now Germany. But you know it was a concept that went throughout the world in the late 1800s. And uh, his ideas were about helping young children to be members of the community and 
recognizing that young children are citizens and then their relationship with nature is number one. And that spiritual connection between nature and a higher and invisible being, as he called it. Really fascinating work. A lot of the work in that time period is very um, revolutionary. He worked with materials and materiality at a time when, you know, our materiality was quite limited. So one of the things that Froebel pioneered was the use of wooden blocks, for lack of a better word. And they were especially designed to show these spiritual relationships between the shapes and then how children could use them. And they were set in a progressive set from, you know, simple to complex and showing these relationships. That's all in part of what my background is and the lens that I look through. That's really exciting. So like that would be kind of in the same vein as like a forest kindergarten, right? Like the outdoor learning environments that children go to. Um, In Winnipeg, there's actually an outdoor school similar to that. And I've always been quite interested in in that and and those elements. That's awesome. There's a legacy that that is, you know, sort of meshed together with forest school for billion principles. But of course, um, you know, not to leave out, you know, indigenous perspectives on on this kind of being outdoors and the spiritual connection. They're all very, Mm. they just come from different cultural perspectives. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting perspective too. Do you think you've seen that um, that kind of spiritual connection between play and development? Has that it tapered? Kind of nowadays, obviously, you know, indigenous people still have that that connection, but you know, I don't see it as much. You know, from my perspective, a father of two, I have a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old, and a lot of what I see is that STEM principles and learning and action, reaction, and interactive. But I'm wondering, do you still see that connection, or do you have to dig a little further into it? It's it's always a debate, um, you know, in our circles, uh, educational circles, about this this spiritual um, connection and whether or not it's articulated or if it's just something we feel inside. So that kind of curiosity that you get when you're engaging in in scientific discoveries as a young child, you know, that's the you know could be a spiritual spark, and it's maybe not articulated um, that way. Um, but but that being said, I do see it happening and I do see a lot of people thinking about it um, and, and talking about it and um, yeah, rec- recognizing it, especially uh, since the pandemic. Um, I've been following, you know, nature learning groups, forest school groups um, for a long time, but it's really had um, a resurgence in the last year um, with some people that are taking their programs outdoors um, for 100% of the day when they might not have been outdoors um, before. And so then, you know, in relation to that spiritual connection, a lot of people then, of course, noticing that that is an aspect of, of, of what is happening when they are outdoors, when they think of themselves as people that are outdoors that seek shelter rather than people that are indoors who need to go out. Um, it's a different mindset. Um, so I, th- right. I see that. I see a resurgence in it, I think. So speaking of the pandemic, and you kind of touched on this, how has that, and I guess the nature of your research been affected through this pandemic and, and your research into childhood developments? 
Well, we certainly had to be very flexible and we had to move forward with a sense of optimism in our <laughs> ability, you know, to be able to, you know, not say, oh, we can't do any research now. We said the opposite. We set to, you know, how can we do this given the circumstances? Because it's very important. So how can we continue to make sure that we're consulting with children on our innovations and our playground designs? How can we continue to do observations of children in playgrounds and, you know, pick our research studies very carefully and make sure, of course, we're following all the protocols that should so that we make sure that we're safe. And I think that was really inspirational to me to be part of a team that wanted to move forward and didn't want to be dormant. Yeah, there's definitely a trend of, you know, just shutting down and waiting to see what happens and people being kind of unable to move. So it's it's really exciting to see that, you know, work kept going. <laughs> and that's, yes. that's a, uh, much uh, in the industry of, you know, dry play or, or you know, outdoor public space uh, that, that, you know, people kept marching forward and kept going outside and kept interacting with the spaces. So in the span of like this new style of research, were there any kind of surprises, epiphanies, anything that was really unique that kind of was pulled from that? There's always surprises when you're engaging in research and especially when you're able to do research with children. So once we decided it was safe to do so, we did go back to the field in North America and I did some observational researches using you know, all of the protocols that we possibly could, especially with distancing and being outdoors, which, you know, mm -hmm. you study playgrounds, you're outdoors. So that helps. And, you know, the surprises for me, I think, were just the sense of joy that children have. <laughs> I don't know why that's surprising because I, I see it all of the time. But I think especially in the pandemic, there was a moment in one of the observations days that I had in Austin where I was outside, you know, waiting for the children to come out of the building where they were. And of course, inside the building, they had to keep six feet apart. They didn't have to wear masks. Um, everything was very different and sedentary for them in the indoors. And when they got to the outdoors, there was one young man who just said, we're free and <laughs> ran to the playground equipment. I could relate to that. And I think that that's been a challenge, I know, for pedagogues, youth workers, teachers, you know, to help children to understand that if at all possible, could they, you know, keep two meters apart? And, you know, I think early on to myself, I thought, oh, this isn't going to go well. But it's okay. I, they get it. We get it, right? And especially if you have really good playground equipment. And I know that we design for social interaction. So a lot of what we're designing for is to keep children face to face and keep yeah. children looking at each other and playing with each other. But luckily, you know, some of the things that I was really happy about, something, take for example, the supernova, which, you know, is this huge high capacity spinning structure. You can play with other children on there and still keep two meters apart. It's great. It's almost as if it was built for that very thing. <laughs> Another thing out there on that particular playground is they have a huge octanet climbing structure, very high capacity. And yes, you can play chase on that and not come dangerously close to another person. So I guess maybe that was a surprise too, that I was 
relieved <laughs> about. So speaking of that and, and kind of research and observing kids, so I noticed it really with my kids. It, they have that I'm free kind of experience. And, you know, a lot of times, I mean, even starting from last year at spring break, we would homeschool them. And then whenever we got outside for PE class, it was just night and day. So have you noticed that that has affected, I mean, the type of research that you're doing? So take, for example, let's say environmentalists. They had a really unique ability to kind of observe the world in this kind of new microcosm that's never happened before, where everything slowed down, pollution was reduced in certain areas. I saw the example of, um, I think, Venice. They saw dolphins swimming in the water and it's crystal clear. Have you noticed that similar type of microcosm change, like the attitude of the kids and the way they play and their behaviors has changed as a result of this freeing aspect of getting outside? Or has it remained the same? I've noticed that there is an effect on children and their desire, you know, to connect with each other that's like articulated more by them. But I've also noticed a lot of really great effort on the part of cities and communities and adults to make, you know, lively streets. So, Uh you know, opening up the street as a place-based I'm seeing a lot of research coming through, you know, I'm a reviewer, a peer reviewer on that very topic. So I'm expecting that to be something that we're going to talk about for another couple of years. The researcher, Tim Jill, he's out of the United Kingdom and um, he just launched a book called Urban Childhoods or Urban Playgrounds, sorry. And it's about that topic of, you know, rather than sequestering children to spaces that are child-friendly or, or for children specifically, opening up the city space and making sure that there's lots of pockets for, you know, not only playing, physically playing, active transport, safe feeling on the street, you know, safe as far as your physical safety, but, you know, quieting the traffic so that, you know, you can make use of that street. So I think that we're going to be talking about that because, you know, here is our golden opportunity, right? We know we have a climate emergency. Know that we have to make changes in our lifestyle. So now we've been sort of pushed in that direction. And um, yeah, so I see a little bit of a change in that with the way that our children are playing. But it, it has to do, I think, a lot with the attitudes of adults in that. Right. So yeah, you're kind of talking about field studies and observational studies. Describe what a, a nine to five for a play institute manager looks like like you know it sounds like a lot of fun and it sounds like it's really interesting yeah it is very enjoyable it's challenging work um but it's very enjoyable because of course the subject area is you you know you're you're studying people's leisure so that's always good the nine to five is not really a nine to five um, especially when (laughs) we're engaging Yeah, in a, in a field studies, um, because as you probably know, playground times fluctuate. Um, you have a really a lot of people using the playground ages two to five from about 10 a.m. to noon. Then you have a lull and then you have a lot of people using the playground from about three to five. Those are school age children. And then you have another wave of people using the park and the playground. And this is probably the most interesting time of day. And then this also did, you know, depends on where you are, what the climate is, what the daylight hours are. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine for you up in Kelowna, your summertime, I mean, you could probably play the playground till midnight, right? <laughs> yeah, we can push 10 o'clock for sure with sun. 
Yeah, which is yeah. which is amazing. Um, not so much down here in Florida, but you know, you're definitely getting that six to eight. And in some parks, um, here they're grouped together with sports fields. So what you have is, you know, people playing football or baseball. Um, lights are on. Playground is the place where the kids who are not on the, um, you know, on the turf or on the pitch um, are, you know, spending their time. So anyway, that nine to five when we're in the field study is, is you know, you've got to be there all day. You're not doing field studies, you know, every day of the work year. So you really need to make the most out of it when you've got that usually two to three week period. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's, you know, of course, I spend a lot of time um, when I'm not doing, you know, the observations and the writing, just reading what other people are are writing about mm. a broad range of fields. So, you know, uh, I read landscape architecture. I read environmental studies a lot. I read um, uh, geography human geography, children's geography is a niche within, within geography. Um, so this is, you know, like health, um, nursing, family studies, all mm -hmm. things contribute to what we might get our ideas about and whereas the context of this research would fit, of course, for Compan then, you know, how we can make our products better and then how, how are we talking about it? And then how, the, how can we ensure um, that, everybody wants them and everybody can get them too. I mean, there's a, a whole other side of the research that's related to equity and public funding as well. Mm. Always got my mind on that um, too. How can we encourage people that it's worth their while to make this investment in mm. place? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's just kind of, you know, so diverse. There's so many factors at play when it comes to these, you know, outdoor public spaces and, you know, COVID, we've talked a lot about that. That's thrown everything, you know, for a loop. And yeah, there's just, it's amazing. You must be the sieve for information at this point. Yeah, so it's a lot. Yeah, but it's good. So how do you decide on that? Is it, uh, you know, specifically with your work with Compan, obviously it's very research-based and, you know, you talked about your on-site research. Do you go into these with very specific things that you're looking for? Is it more product-driven to say, is this going to work in the field? Or is it purely observation? We're just going to look and wait for things to happen to give us ideas. And It's a little bit of everything. So we do have product testing and that happens in Denmark. And I am a part of that, but not in person anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ongoing. And that's, you know, their nine to five is very intensely related to, you know, the schedule of, you know, testing the innovations and then perturbing the process and then testing some more and then, you know, making decisions before things go to production. That's very product focused, child focused, how the children respond, but also the safety. So you can have, you know, a lot of ideas about what you would want to do on a playground, but it's got to be free of hazards. And you know, we have these standards, which are, are very beneficial for people. Then how do you work with the materials to meet the standards so that the play is thrilling? So there's that. But once we go out post-occupancy, which I would say I'm more involved in that side of things, we want to know how long children will play on different pieces of equipment because the academic research doesn't touch that. It doesn't touch it at all. Academics go out and 
do post-occupancy studies and they'll quadrant off a section of a playground and, hey, maybe it contains a spinner, but maybe it contains a slide. How long mm. play on the slide and the spinner? I don't know because they only measure in a certain way. So, they don't. so we need baseline and diverse information on that so that we can, well, I mean, it really assists us in giving advice to people who want to buy this equipment. What's the capacity and how long will children play? And will they play actively or will they just sit in inventory? So that's really been our focus. And we're always focused on the active play. So how can we make something active? And I think some of the really impressive work that you know I'm proud to say that we've done is you know, taking something that would ordinarily be sedentary, such as sand and water play, not that what not water play is not sedentary, but water when you're touching it with your hands, right? Mm, right. And then looking at how do you enhance that environment so that children will move their bodies around more when they're engaging with that tactile material? And I think we've hit it really well. And um, I think it's great. And especially, you know, water you know, which I'm not involved in the big movement water um, research, but I'm often, you know, observing children at splash pads and in these spaces, especially here in Florida. <laughs> what a lifesaver it is for communities to, right. be able to help their kids and their parents cool down, you know, in ways that are environmentally friendly and that, um, you know, they're not defunct. You know, they're, the swimming pool is great. I love swimming. I think it's so important. But, you know, you're only using the swimming for a certain amount of time. And you're because of how much exertion you have to do when you're swimming, you're, you're doing it in bursts. Whereas when you're at a splash pad, you're running around, you're cooling off, you're filling things up and pouring things out. It's just, it's fantastic. And it removes some of those barriers too with, you know, depth and standing water. Yeah, yeah. Well, and not only barriers when it comes to the actual physical space, but access to the space for something like that. Like splash pads are, you know, usually an open space accessible by anybody at any time, right? Yeah. So, Suzanne, how did how did you play as a kid? Like, does that inform, you know, what you're researching or what you're keying in on, or like how your kids have been play? You, you know, how they played as children, like when they were younger, and those kinds of things. Mom walking yeah. around the clipboard when your kids are at the park. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all of my children now are adults, so I sometimes will bring them along when we do observations. Um, but uh, and when they were younger, and this was before I, I had dedicated myself to the research of, of spaces. Um, yeah, we used to love to survey playgrounds in different places, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that how you play as a child affects all of us as adults, and hopefully how that's nurtured. And of course, it has to do with the eco-cultural niche that you grew up in. And mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to have a broad range of experiences. I grew up in a large metropolis area in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I think it's so important for us to invest as communities in these spaces that children mm -hmm. will welcome um, and also, you know, on the topic of inclusion, you know, socially inclusive, but inclusive of persons of a range of abilities and, and uh, ability to access the space is so important. Um, just, you know, where we share this existence with each other, we should make it a good one. We, we certainly can. So speaking of inclusivity, obviously that's 
extremely important. And it's kind of, it's a hot topic, but it's not hot as it new. It's been around forever. You said you grew up in kind of these different areas, your urban municipality, which likely had little pocket parks. And then obviously the population, New Haven of a thousand, which probably had a lot of open spaces. What are some simple ways that people can create these barrier-free um, and equitable spaces that are truly inclusive and, and kind of go beyond that inclusivity of just providing, you know, I think of a, a spray park instead of providing one um, accessible bathroom because that's what code says. Why not do two or three? Like, what, what are some easy ways that municipalities can achieve this barrier-free play in a yeah. certain form? Well, I think selecting universally designed pieces of equipment is going to get you a lot of mileage. And, you know, I just think in terms of Compan, we have, we're always designing with universal design in mind, but some pieces just really get it right. So what you're looking for is something that everybody will want to play with, but that is easy for a person if they use an assistive device or if they have a caregiver to transfer them into the piece of equipment. And, you know, some examples are a basket swing is a very universally designed piece of equipment that is such a hit. Such mm. everybody. Or these carousel spinners that, you know, have an open design that you can get on it in different ways. So you don't have to stand up on it, but you could. You don't have to hang your arms off it, but you could. You know, so I think that that gives you a lot of mileage. That's a simple way. But it, it isn't a simple problem, especially as, you know, communities get more complex and overlap each other. So in a place like New Haven, West Virginia, I'm not kidding you, everybody knows each other. You know, so if there is a person who uses a wheelchair, they know it and they're going to make right. sure that that person, you know, has the things that they need. But in a place like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where maybe you belong to one borough, but maybe you use services in another and then maybe there are people coming in from another, it's difficult because you don't all know each other. So you have to become a little bit more proactive in, in your community engagement. And that's always a good thing. We don't always hit that target as citizens, but I think that that's the way to do it is just really make sure you find out what people need, what they want, mm-hmm. and feel safe in environments. <laughs> when you mentioned uh, a town where everybody knows each other, I, I was going to mention, you know, I, I grew up in a rural town, uh, half the size of New Haven, West Virginia, <laughs> 500 <laughs> people. Um, and I was I was thinking to the play that that I experienced, you know, in in that community where maybe there wasn't tons of infrastructure and there was a lot more like open ended play, right? There's you know kind of more inventive maybe. And again, I didn't grow up in an urban center, so I don't know. But that's a really interesting perspective. Is you know the infrastructure can kind of define the kind of play experiences that you get, um, and and planning for you know all the groups is a lot easier when you know everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Maker Group, including Parkworks, Waterplay, and We Kid Manufacturing. Contact us at info at makergroup.com. That's info at M-A-K-R group.com. We'll connect again soon.